Psalm 94. Let's go there. This is our last song of summer, of this summer. This is our 12th year to be in Psalms. And uh, we, we missed a few years in there. But I was looking back and checked. We actually did Psalm 1 on the first Sunday of June in 2007. Uh, we, we have a year or two in there along the way that we did some other things, but uh, we've been rolling now for several years working through Psalms, and unless Jesus comes back, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to open our Bibles to Psalm 95 uh, next summer. And, um, and so, um, Psalm 94. I'm sorry, I just looked out here and I saw Bethany. Bethany is your last Sunday here. Bethany is headed to uh, Southeastern Seminary to uh, study there for ministry. And Bethany grew up here, baptized here, family's been here. And um, just go get educated and, and, and uh, love Jesus and share the gospel and come back and give us a good report. And we love you. And wish you the best, all right? Um, vacation. The last couple of years, we worked hard as a family to try to get people together, all of our people together. There are 10 of us now. You had three marriages in there, no grandkids yet, but you got three marriages. And so you get 10, and we're there for a week. You tell them the date, and y'all come. It's a miracle to get them all there at the same time. Uh, but we did get three days in that week where they're all there. And we've we landed on something that I think we've enjoyed, at least Dad has. Sometimes it doesn't work both ways. But uh, I last summer, again this summer, given everybody in the room one of these giant post-it notes, like a, uh, a tear sheet. It's got a little sticky on the back. You can put it on the wall or a window and just a blank page. And so everybody gets one of those giant pages. And, and then I ask them a series of questions, about ten questions. Things like, um, everybody answering for yourselves, right on this page, like, who are your, best, your three best friends? You can put on there. Or like, uh, what's a childhood memory that you think of that you'd love to relive, you'd love to go back to? And I know some of you are thinking right now, I'm, what a nerdy dad, you know. Just, I, mean, I, I bet your kids, are, well, they, they went along, all right? They, they did it with us. And, uh, but last year, not this summer, but last year we asked this question. I said, if mom and dad were, were living somewhere 10 years from now, where would you want them to be living? And I just turned 55, and I'm thinking, you know, 10 years, 65, retire, I don't know. What, what, just life is passing fast. And I'm like, I wonder what the kids want. I wonder what they're thinking. And every one of them said, we want you living in Watkinsville. But wait, listen, not just Watkinsville. They said, we want you living at 1021 River Place, Watkinsville. And that's the house we've been in for 20 years. And, and it's like they're saying, we're leaving, we're going, but we want to come back to some place. And that's where we want to come back to. And it was, thinking about that, it was a reminder to me of how important a sense of place is to people and wherever we go whatever we do there's still kind of this thing where we're like I, I, I want a sense of place I, I want a place where I know that spot and um, 
today I want to talk to you about a, um, an important place. About living in an important place. I want to flip that question around just a little bit. And I want you to ask this question in this way. Heavenly Father, 10 years from now, what place do you want me living in? Heavenly Father, where do you want me living in 10 years? Ask him. Father, where do you want me living in 10 years? Now, what I'm talking about is a spiritual place. And Psalm 94 tells us the place that God wants us living. Not just 10 years from now. I really believe it's the place that God wants us living today. And if the Spirit would do His work in this room, we all could get to that place today before we leave. And that place is a place called assurance. Assurance. Where does God want you living? Where does God want me living? I believe he wants us to be living in a place of assurance. Now, assurance means certainty. Assurance has to do with confidence. Assurance is certainly tied to faith. And he wants us in a place, regardless of our physical place, regardless of our physical circumstances, he wants us living in a place of faith, living in a place of certainty, living in a place of assurance that he is king and he is in absolute control. And there are a lot of things happening in our world, probably a lot of things happening in your world that I know nothing about. That I believe God has us in this exact place today to say to you, I want you in a place of assurance today. Lord, do you know what's going on? I want you in a place of assurance today. Lord, do you understand just this week what's happening? I want you in a place of faith. Trust in me. Certainty that I'm on the throne, that I'm king. Psalm 94 is a psalm that addresses life and the world when things don't seem right when they don't seem fair it is a psalm that deals with injustice one writer speaking about psalm 94 says that this psalm addresses radical injustice and you will see that in the words of psalm 94 and if we're following Jesus and we're living for the Lord and we believe that God is reigning, what are we to do in a world where at the same time we believe that it feels like the wrong is ruling and the wicked are ruling? And that God has stepped out of the picture somehow or in some way. And some of you personally have dealt with what you would say is unjust. Others, you've observed a time in history or 
you're experiencing something in life, you, you, you look at the world and you see things that you would say, that's not right. God, where are you? That's the cry of Psalm 94. This is the psalm that puts those kinds of feelings in words. And, and, and we're going to work through this. There's several movements, of, about four movements in these verses that we're going to work through. And let's look at verse 1 and hear this cry in a context of radical injustice. Verse 1. Oh, Lord. God of vengeance, O oh God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O oh judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? That word doesn't connect. Think gloat or prance or strut. O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked gloat or exalt or prance, strut. Verse 4, they pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who, touch, he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked for the Lord will not forsake his people he will not abandon his heritage for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it who rises up for me against the wicked who stands up for me against evildoers if the Lord had not been my help my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O oh Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. How do we live in an unjust world when we follow a righteous, ruling God? Well, this psalm shows us the first movement of this psalm is, number one, an appeal to God's character. This psalm is an appeal to God's character. This appeal to God's character comes in the form of a song. It comes in the form of a prayer. It's poetry. It's, uh, it's writing. There's effort and energy given here by the inspiration of the Spirit in an individual's life to put into words the context of their world and and God hears the cry of our heart. 
And he appeals to the character of God in this prayer. He says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Now, when we think about praising the Lord and we think about songs that recognize the attributes of God, it's pretty common for us to sing songs that talk about the glory of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the holiness of God, the power of God, the forgiveness of God. We raise those words, but Psalm 94 opens our eyes to another attribute that we don't talk a lot about when we recognize who God is. And this psalm, from the very beginning, appeals to the character of God, the attribute of God of vengeance, of avenging for what is wrong. We speak of God being a God of love. This psalm teaches us that he's also a just God. And that there are things in God's eyes based on his law that God would say are right and God would say are wrong. And this prayer, this singer, this psalmist is saying, God, you know what is wrong. Look, Verse 2, he says, rise up, O judge of the earth. He's saying, God, you are the judge. You know right. You know wrong. You see what's going on. And I'm appealing to you, God, to shine forth. He's saying, God, I'm appealing to you. Show up. Step out. Be who you are. We're living in radical injustice. And we need you to do what you do. Notice The efforts of this psalmist is to take their situation and put it in the hands of God. This psalm teaches us that prayer is not passive. Prayer is not passive. And oftentimes we may think, surely there's something more, surely there's something greater, surely there's something bigger that I can do to right this injustice. And certainly it is right for us to desire justice. If we're a follower of Jesus Christ and his spirit lives in us, there will be a desire to see righteousness. There will be a desire to see people walk in truth, to know the truth, believe the truth, and live the truth, and to treat one another according to the truth. There is that desire, but God's design, as we see for individuals here in writing injustice, is to take it to God and say, God, yours, it is yours to avenge. This is not just some Old Testament precept or some Old Testament teaching. This is New Testament teaching. And we go to the book of Romans that speaks of the role of government and authority in Romans 13. But just prior to the role of government in Romans 13, you have the role of the individual. Romans 12 verse 19. Beloved Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, if he is thirsty, 
give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sometimes the most humble act of your life will be to take your hands off of a situation and release it to the hands of God and make an appeal to the character of God. What this psalm does is gives us the path, it gives us the right, it gives us the right permission, it shows us how to be able to say, Lord, I'm praying that in the wickedness of this world that your vengeance would be poured out. That you will rise up and as the wise, all-knowing judge, you will deal with this wickedness. This is the boundary for me and my life. That in times of injustice, it shows me that my first and greatest work is prayer. As an individual, a follower of Christ, this puts a boundary on how I might approach someone who I believe is acting unjustly. This is the psalm that would keep me as an individual from deciding myself that the leader of that group is wicked and evil and grabbing a gun and going and taking that person out. It is, a, it is a picture for us as individual followers of Jesus Christ that an appeal to God's character is of great consequence against the work of the wicked. He appeals to God's character. The second movement of these verses is that he makes an assessment of the wicked. You might ask, what kind of things are we talking about when we talk about wickedness? Well, he lays those out in these next verses, verses 4 through 11. You have the assessment of the wicked's words. You have an assessment of the wicked's wounds. You have an assessment of the wicked's wisdom. And you see the words of the wicked. It says here in verse Verse 4, they pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. Words of the wicked are self-centered. They are self-promoting. They are words that put themselves out there. They are words that say, look at me. It's words that raise themselves to a place of importance while putting down others. The second assessment have to do with the wounds of the wicked. How do they how do they act? How do they perform? What, what, is, what are their actions? Verse 5, they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And so you see that the, 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 the ways, the wounds of the wicked are crushing and humiliating and murdering. When you hear of news Seemingly, usually in other locations than the U.S. where believers in Jesus Christ are persecuted even to the point of death. How do you pray? How do you, how do you address? How do you talk about 
to God when you see God's people crushed, God's people afflicted. This Psalm 94 teaches us we pray for God to deal with them. When you hear of reports of people being persecuted, if you ever have contact with people who are living in times of great persecution and you ask them, tell us, what can we do? What can we do to help you? They will say, please what? Pray for us. It's not just habit. That's not just uh, the Christianese of what to say. It is those who are living in the pain and the threat of persecution and injustice. It is what they have seen do the most work. And they say, we just need more people praying to God for God to do what only God can do. They assess here, this, this you crush, you afflict. You look this description of murdering. They kill the widow, the sojourner. The sojourner is just another word for, we might have the word a foreigner to the people here, an immigrant, a person that this is, they have no citizenship, but they are here, they're there, they live here. And he's saying that there is this injustice of how the widow who has no husband, the sojourner who has no citizen rights, the fatherless who have no parents to protect what he's describing here, the most vulnerable of a land, the most vulnerable of a people. And he says the injustice is, is that their lives are taken. And then he speaks to their wisdom. He said, wisdom? Yeah. He said, they say that the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive, and the wisdom, the thought is by the wicked is that they can do whatever they want to do and it will never have any impact on what God does to them. The thought is there is no accountability. There is no day of judgment. And the writer of the psalm says, understand, O dullest of the people. And that's a little bit of a softening of the translation. The word often is actually translated stupid. It is understand, O stupid of the people, O dullest of the people. But he gets stronger. Fools, when will you be wise? And then there's this, this work of the song here that presents the question that shows the foolishness of their thoughts. It says, you think that God doesn't see? You think that God doesn't understand? You think that God is not aware of what's going on? He says, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? The one that put a very ear, the, the creator God, you think that he himself, if he can do that, that he can't hear what you're doing? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches, you say, God who knows everything and shares that knowledge, teaches that knowledge, does he not know your very limited thoughts? And it is this song, this psalm that speaks to those that are living in, a, in, a, in the environment of injustice to say, be assured, God hears God sees and God knows. And this moves from appeal, an appeal to God's character to an assessment of the wicked 
to a little bit of an unexpected move in verse 12, and that is an appreciation for God's discipline. And he moves from looking at the wicked, those who have rejected God and give no thought to God, to turning back on himself as the writer of the psalm and as God's people, and there is an appreciation for God's discipline. Verse 12, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. You could just as well as say, happy is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. And the psalmist comes to a point where he recognizes, stay with me, he, he recognizes that even though they're walking through hard and difficult, even unjust situations at times, that in that God can bring about discipline in their own life that will result in blessing, that will result in joy, that will be exactly what they need in their life to transform them. He recognizes that the discipline of God is the sanctifying work of, the God, of, of God. We're not talking about discipline of punishment or retribution because of sin. We're talking about the discipline of hard things, of difficult challenges, reoccurring challenges that just happened over and over again in life. And, and, and he would say, Lord, this kind of discipline, Lord, you, you work. Lord, even in that, to assure me, to strengthen my faith. He says, verse 13, to give him rest from days of trouble until what? Until a pit is dug for the wicked. The picture there is that as, the, as wickedness happens in the life of a follower of Christ, discipline takes place. We recognize God's at work even in our own life, the sanctifying work of the Lord. At the same time, the wicked would be digging a pit. And the word tells us that you dig a pit, you fall into it. It is, a, it is this picture of God's working in your life at the same time that he's bringing about judgment for those who reject him. How can God work in our lives great difficulty and even times of injustice to, to sanctify us, to transform us. How does that happen? Maybe this illustration would give us a little picture of that. It helps me. Some of you read the book. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to read it soon. It's a book called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. He tells in that book the story of interviewing Chinese pastors. And there's this trying to figure out why, why these in times of great persecution, how they would be prepared to pastor and lead other believers. And this question comes up about asking the leaders of the church if they had uh, been to seminary. Have you had training? And the reply back from those pastors was, no, we've never been to seminary, but we've been to prison. What would that mean? It would mean for them, with our faith, we've been where it's hard. We've been where it's real life. It's not just tests on papers. 
it is test of life and death. We're prepared to be leaders of the church because we've been to prison and suffered there and experienced what God does in hard things in the life of a believer. One writer I read said that until we accept the fact that God is willing to discipline us, we'll never be able to comprehend what he's doing in us. There's an appreciation of God's discipline even in times of injustice. And then last, we move to this desired place and assurance of God's reign. R-E-I-G-N. An assurance of God's reign. There is no mention in Psalm 94 of God being king. There is no mention of his sovereignty by word. But there is this conversation going on that shows that the expectation of the writer of Psalm 94 is that God is judge. God is supreme. God is the one that can, can avenge his people. And, and the question seems to be hanging out there. Lord, if you reign, where are you? Why aren't you doing what you do? Show up and shine forth. And when you get to verse 16, you begin to see this assurance set in in the writer of this song. He says, who rises up for me against the wicked, who stands up for me against the evildoers, if the Lord had not been my help. And he begins to speak of the attributes of God that are ministering to his heart. He speaks of God being a helper. Speaks of God showing his steadfast love. He speaks of the consolations of God or the comfort of God, the stronghold of God. Speaks of God being a rock and a refuge. Look, verse, verse um, 18. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O oh Lord, held me up. Some of you have lived there. Some of you are living there right now. And you would think in the world that you're living in, the experience that you're having, that you wonder tomorrow morning if you can even put one foot in front of the other. You feel like you're slipping. And the writer of the psalm comes to us today and preserves this word for this day and says, you'll think your foot is slipping, but God in, as king, as he will come and buoy you with his steadfast love. Oh, Lord, you held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, you carry those this morning, the, the cares of your heart. What does God do? Your consolations cheer my soul. He said, your comfort bring me joy. In the circumstances, God does this kind of work as we trust him and rely on him and give it to him. In verse 22, he says, but the Lord has become my stronghold. Think about it in a picture of waves just tossing back and forth, something to grab a hold of. He says, God, you've become my stronghold, my God, the rock of my refuge. I love this question in verse 16. It says, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? You know where that question is answered? Where is that question answered? Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? That question is answered at Calvary. That question is answered by the cross of Jesus Christ. In radical injustice, a sinless lamb of God bore your iniquity, bore my sin. 
and he took on the sins of the world and he stood up against the wicked and he paid the ultimate price, sinless, spotless, blameless blood of the lamb, paid for our sin. He stood against the wicked and one day he will return and written on his robe will be King of kings and Lord of lords. We see in these verses that question has been answered in Christ. We have this glorious grace in our life not to look ahead to Jesus, but to look back to Jesus in faith, believing that we can hold on to the gracious gift of God's steadfast love, that we can be consoled by his comfort, that we can cling to Christ as our stronghold, and we can hide in the rock of his refuge. It is a place of assurance. So what do we do when the world seems unfair and not right? We appeal to God's character. We appreciate his discipline. Hear the words of Oswald Chambers. Just this last week, reading on July 28th, Oswald Chambers is speaking of, mentions the verse where Jesus told the disciples, get in the boat and go the other side. And they got in the boat just like he said, and the waves came, the storm came. They obeyed and a storm came. Don't miss that. They obeyed and a storm came. We don't, we don't really equate obedience like that, do we? We think we obey, good comes. They obeyed, storm came. Oswald Chambers says we are apt to imagine that if Jesus Christ constrains us and we obey him, he will lead us to great success. We must never put our dreams of success as God's purpose for us. His purpose is that I depend on him and on his power now. If I can stay in the middle of the turmoil, calm and unperplexed, that is the end of the purpose of God. God is not working towards a particular finish. His end is the process. That I see him walking on the waves. No shore in sight, no success, no goal, just the absolute certainty. And if you will, I would say just the absolute assurance that it is all right because I see him walking on the sea. God's end is to enable me to see that he can walk on the chaos of my life just now. The invitation this morning is for you to move to a place of assurance. That even in a world where it doesn't seem like it's right, God's walking on the waves of that chaos and you can rest in him even as you appeal to him I want to ask Tim and Caleb to come they're going to help us close today with a song of remembrance we've got time we've got space some of you have some things that you need to just lay before the Lord. Now, our desire is 
that the wicked, according to these verses, as, as they're defined in these verses, that they would repent. This very day is an example of God's patience with those who have rejected him, with those who have not received him. There was a day when you as a believer, with me as a believer, there was a day where I would have been counted among the wicked. My iniquity on me. And today, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never trusted him for the payment of your sins, God's mercy to you today is that he's given you another opportunity to respond to him before this kind of judgment takes place. And if not for grace, we would all be counted among the wicked. So why not today come to Christ? Let's stand together. If you need someone to pray with you, I'll be here at the front. You want to talk about salvation, I can help you with that here. You want to pray and take some things to the Lord. Use this time right now. Let's worship him. Let's be obedient to him right now.